Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. Today. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi, welcome to Countrywide. I'm Jessica Schremmer, bringing you the program from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne this week. Today, you'll hear why Woolworths has been slammed for its decision to remove Australian-owned Norco milk from all of its 150 supermarkets and metro-branded stores in metropolitan Sydney. We'll also take a look at a new threat to the Australian honey and bee industry after the detection of a single Varroa Jacob Sobe mite in a sentinel beehive at the port of Brisbane. And we'll head to the Northern Territory, where a farming family is trialing to grow a bright yellow fruit called Langsat. It looks like um, grapes attached to trunks, but instead of the color of a color grape of red or, or green, it's actually golden and yellow. Um, it's probably as big as, uh, just a little bit larger than a quail egg. More on that story shortly, but first up, we'll take a look at the Australian wine industry and its trade war with China. There are some tentative good news following the World Trade Organization conference earlier this week. Meetings between government ministers are continuing and officials are telling the ABC that China is on track to lift tariffs of up to 200% on Australian wine at the end of March. China was the biggest buyer of strain wine until 2020, when the country slapped tariffs and trade restrictions on Australian wine, effectively halting the export of wine to China. Warwick Long spoke to Parliament House reporter Cass Sullivan about the impacts on Australian growers and the industry. There are a lot of producers, there are fishers, there are meat processors, and there are wine grape growers in particular who are still really hurting from this trade war, which started out before or as the COVID pandemic was really spreading. You might think back to uh, 2020, and there was a number of Australian abattoirs in Queensland and New South Wales that were the first to be suspended from exporting to China. At the time, it was over um, labelling complaints. These abattoirs, they represented something like a third of a trade considered to be worth $3.5 billion. And despite some abattoirs getting back into China last year, these big, heavy-hitting ones are still locked out. And they were really the first cab off the rank in this trade war that really spread from a lot of diplomatic tensions that didn't necessarily have to do with primary production. What's the government been saying? Because it was big on trying to change the relationship, but yeah. it's been saying that for a long time and not every every tariff is gone, as we've just been speaking about with wine. Yeah, that's right. And it's not the same government either. You'll have to recall that we've had a change in Canberra and the government has been working to restore relations with China, not just the trading relationship, but the diplomatic one as well. And when it comes to trade, we have seen exports that were locked out of China since 2020, including barley, coal, timber. I mentioned a few meatworks, including a couple of lamb producers, lamb exporters from Victoria, have been able to get back into China. 
But this conversation is a long way from over. Still got tariffs applying to Australian wine, red wine, into China, a trade that was worth $1.2 billion before these tariffs were applied. I think last year, Australia sold something like $10 million worth of wine into China. So there's a big difference there. And you've also got the lobster fishes. That's a trade worth $700 million before quarantine concerns were raised by the Chinese government again in 2020. And we haven't seen any rock lobster go into that marketplace since. So you might say that things are headed in the right direction. We know before Anthony Albanese went to China last year, um, I think it was November time, the Australian Trade Minister and Foreign Minister announced that China had agreed to review these tariffs applied to wine. That review was always expected to run until the end of March, which is fast upon us, um, with the Australian government maintaining that if the tariffs aren't removed, it will resume its complaint with the World Trade Organisation, which I guess is a bit like the independent umpire. So in terms of the the impacts then and the fallout from this trade Mm. war, even if tariffs are returned, we just heard Paul DeRico saying it'll be years before growers start to to feel prices go up as they try and clear a backlog of red wine in particular. Um, Has the trade relationship and the market of this produce being produced in uh, Australia, has this been changed forever? Well, I think you could certainly suggest that. You know, if you talk to wine grape growers, particularly those growing grapes to go into the bulk wine market, they're really hurting at the moment. We've heard about producers receiving the equivalent of 1970s prices. One wine grape grower I met in the South Australian Riverland last year told me before China's tariffs, they might receive something like $650 a tonne for Cab Sav or Shiraz grapes. That's more likely to be $120 per tonne this year. That's talk about a cost of living crisis. How do you pay your irrigation bills, your supermarket bills, your electricity bills? How do you keep your vines alive when the prices are going backwards? And while there's a lot of optimism and hope from the government and the industry that China will remove these tariffs, there's so much wine in the world at the moment. There's an absolute glut, even those who have replaced Australia in the highly valuable Chinese marketplace and not getting the returns that Australia saw. The economy there is slowing and there's just going to be such a backlog that it's going to take a long time. And then you've also got the issue of developing trust with customers. You know, for so long, Australia realised it was putting, I guess, a lot of its eggs in the China basket, you might say, and that's because it was getting such high returns. But there's plenty of people that have been caught out by this trade war, um, including those in the barley, timber and coal sectors. And it'll be interesting to see whether they want to go down the path or whether they're perhaps more willing to diversify for a lower value return. National Rural Reporter Cass Sullivan speaking to Warwick Long. Meanwhile, Trentham Estate CEO Anthony Murphy operates a winery on the New South Wales Victorian border. He says he has Chinese buyers arriving in April and is preparing for the market to reopen. We heard March sometime into March, you know, quite a while ago now. I think hopefully it, it will happen. What kind of effect would it have on your business if those tariffs were lifted? It'll have a great effect, I think, not only directly but indirectly. We still have a person employed full-time in Shanghai who has helped us with sales and, of course, for the last couple of years they They've struggled to get meat sales at all with the tariffs, so it'll be great to have them back selling 
the way they should be, hopefully, but also indirectly because of the tariffs have been a big oversupply of red wine. There's just tanks and tanks of red wine around at the moment. So hopefully in time we can clear that backlog and the industry can get back into some type of balance. How big of a market was China for you before the tariffs came in in 2020? It was about 20% of our sales and growing and of course, once the tariffs came along, it just completely stopped, basically, except for sparkling wine. If we can just get back some of that market share, it'll be great because the domestic market is very difficult. Do you expect that China could step back in to that 20% of your sales or would you expect it to be a smaller portion at this stage initially? I think initially it'll probably be smaller. We have got uh, two groups coming already in early April, Chinese buyers, so... Hopefully something will come of that. But they've got to get the, our products back on the shelves as well. So it's, it all takes time. That seems like a fairly good indication if you've got people coming out in early April. Is, is that a very strong indication to you that the market is opening up again? It is. It is. The, the uh, Chinese buyers are saying, yes, they're certainly interested in Australian wines again. They, after we were locked out, they went to Chilean wines and South African wines, and they still prefer Australian wines. You know, ours are better quality for money, so I think they will come back for sure. But their economy is a bit slow at the moment, so it probably won't get back to where it was for quite a while, I wouldn't have thought. That was Trentham Estate CEO Anthony Murphy speaking there. Murray Valley Wine Growers CEO Paul DeRico says signs are good at the moment, but he cautions it is too early for growers to get their hopes up. Well, uh, personally, I take the view that we can't take for granted that will happen. Industry communications are that, yes, it's scheduled to be decided by the 31st of March, but we certainly take nothing for granted that will happen. We're really hopeful that the tariffs would be dropped, but then that they would be dropped in full. I suppose the other issue is, yeah, it could be in part or in full. And if they were to be dropped, when would that be effective? So it would be really good news for industry, but we're just holding on tight for the decision to be made in due course. Murray Valley Vine Grape Grower CEO Paul Derrico ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, if you're buying milk at your local grocer, how do you decide what milk to buy? And do you stick to a certain brand? Well, for consumers in metropolitan Sydney, that choice of sortiment is changing, much to the frustration of dairy farmers. Queensland dairy farmers find themselves with less market share after Woolworths has removed farmer-owned Norco milk from all of its 150 supermarkets and metro-branded stores in metropolitan Sydney. In a written statement, a company spokesperson said the decision was based on customer demand and didn't affect any stores stocking Norco milk north of Sydney. Jennifer Nichols spoke to dairy farm advocacy group East Aus Milk president Joe Bradley, asking him what he thought of the move. I think it's absolutely ridiculous, but it shows to me that, once again, the big supermarket doesn't give us stuff about the consumer and, just as importantly, doesn't give us stuff about the farmer. Simple as that. Woolworths is saying this is in reaction that they've seen lower demand for Norco in metropolitan Sydney stores. What do you think of that? 
Uh, look, one of the things we have realised is the supermarkets manipulate the way they handle their um, stocking their shelves to manipulate things that all of a sudden, oh, yeah, well, look, we don't, we don't need to sell that product anymore because we're not selling as much. And it's just, with all the inquiries that the government has called into the supermarkets, to do this now, to me, basically says to the government, we've got too much power, guys. You know, no one's going to touch us. We can do what the hell they like. And then that's what they've done in this case. They haven't asked the consumer what they want. They certainly haven't spoken to the farmers. They've just said, hey, we've decided, as in case of Woolworths, that, yeah, we're now going to remove this from the shelf and um, to help with the consequences of either from consumer, farmer or government. To me, it's max absolute arrogance. Now, Woolworths didn't put up a spokesperson in person, but they released a statement and they have said that they know that Norco has a very loyal following up north and we've actually increased the range of Norco products in our Queensland stores and New South Wales stores north of Sydney. They're saying that there are no changes to the number of stores that are stocking those products north of metropolitan Sydney. Uh, I don't believe the guff that comes out of the... um the supermarkets these days um, and once again the processor is in this case Norco won't say anything because if they do typically they know that they'll be you know hit again by the powerful supermarkets so you know it's up to organizations like us to say it as it is it's just it's just ridiculous you know Norco god Norco is the lifeblood of a lot of farmers in Queensland and New South Wales and without Norco this dairy industry would be in a hell of a lot worse state and we need Norco and the consumer needs a strong Norco. But yeah, in the supermarkets, this is their way of, once again, of controlling the processor. As you were saying, Norco has not actually put up a spokesperson. They've also released a statement and said that they're urging people to go online and work out where Norco products are stocked and support the farmers by yeah. buying them. Do you think that yeah. is telling in itself that they haven't said anything about Woolworths? Oh, absolutely. Look, one thing that I have learnt over the years now is that the processors, if they come out and say anything against the supermarkets, they get hammered by the supermarkets. Their products all of a sudden don't appear at eye level. Their products don't get redone on the shelves. They don't get refilled in the store. Uh, the processors, they can't criticise supermarkets. If they do, they'll be hammered. It's as simple as that. You know, you can't, you can't afford to, you know, as a processor, you can't afford to say anything against supermarkets if you want to sell products in their stores. Simple as that. And how are dairy farmers travelling at the moment now that milk prices have improved from what they were? Milk prices have, have, certainly have come up, but so have our costs. You know, people say, oh, we're getting record milk prices. We've got record input costs. Most dairy farmers at the moment are making ends meet. But once again, it depends on the individual. Like if you've got any sort of debt hanging over your head uh, with the rise in interest rates, you'll be in heaven. The bottom line is we're losing farmers out of this industry every day. And the worrying thing for, well, it should be for the consumer and the government, is that Australia is now a net importer of dairy products. Now, if that doesn't scare the hell out of you, it scares the hell out of me. East Aus Milk President and Dayboro dairy farmer Joe Bradley speaking to Jennifer Nichols. Now, while you might have heard quite a bit about the varroa mite, Australian beekeepers are concerned about another pest detected this week. The southeast Queensland bee industry is in lockdown as investigations continue into the extent of the varroa Jacobsoni mite detection in a sentinel hive at the port of Brisbane. While the insect is a different species to the varroa destructor that has caused mass devastation in New South Wales and Victoria, 
Australian honeybee industry council CEO Danny Lefeuve told Megan Hughes the detection is still significant to the industry. It's just another blow for our industry at the moment, another detection of a pest that we don't want. So we know uh, last week that there was a detection of a single mite in a sentinel hive at the Port of Brisbane amongst six other sentinel hives. There's been a lot of uh, surveillance around that area and thankfully they haven't been able to detect any other mites, which is a good sign to suggest that it might be isolated. When it comes to management, you know, in terms of the Varroa Destructor, there's the national management plan in place now. Is the, the Jacob Sono being treated in the same way or it'll be looked to be eradicated from that Brisbane port area? Uh, so it will fall under the same process as Varroa Destructor in that it falls under the Emergency Plant Pest Response Deed and as a described process with a new detection on what happens. So currently it's in what they call the incident definition phase where they're trying to establish the actual size of the response that's needed uh, and if it's beyond the capability of Queensland Department to uh, run that or fund that response, then they'll come to the CCPP with a response plan to look to cost share that the same as they did for Varroa Destructor. Could you run me through the actual, I guess, the, the full process from detection to either eradication or management? Yeah, sure. So the uh, initial detection is is done by an agency. Uh, in this case, it was Queensland Department of Fisheries and Forestries. They notify the federal department of agriculture that they've had a, a detection of what is considered to be a emergency plant pest. They then uh, notify Plant Health Australia, who are custodians of the deed. PHA determine who the affected parties would be for that pest and those parties are notified. So obviously the honeybee industry uh, is a affected party in this instance, of which we are the representatives, Arvik. But the same affected parties as Rail Destructor are identified as affected parties for Jacob's own eye. So there's 26 affected parties identified. Um, and then we're kept uh, with situational updates uh, from QDAF about their progress. Uh, and whilst they're in the incident definition phase, determining the extent of the incursion and how big the response will be, they'll give us continual updates until the point they decide um, to submit a response plan, which is considered by the CCPP. If the CCEPP decides that the response plan submitted is technically sound, they'll make a recommendation to the National Management Group. The National Management Group will then ultimately make the decision about is it technically feasible to eradicate, is it cost beneficial and are they willing to fund the response plan and then if they agree a response, an eradication response would be conducted on this pest. Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO Danny Lefeuve speaking with Megan Hughes. Now we'll stay in Queensland where the fishing and seafood industry says New regulations are onerous. Fishers are now risking their lives to get fresh local seafood to Australian consumers. The changes have been introduced in the effort to phase out the use of gillnets in the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area. Rural reporter Lucy Cooper filed this story. Darcy Fazio began his journey in the gillnet fishing industry 21 years ago when he first picked up a rod continuing on his father's and Nonna's legacy. I was really young and um, 
me and my dad used to go down just we used to live in this old little house on the edge of a creek and we used to go down we used to put a net out um, in the little creek and that was one of my first memories and there's actually a picture of me holding up a, um, a little bull shark and a, and a blue salmon and an anchor my sister was holding the anchor. It's a job Darcy feels destined for. It's just a thirst. I, I just have this feeling that I want to go fishing every day. It's just a thirst that I can't quench no matter how much I go. Or I just I just have to do it. I feel sick if I don't go. But it's been a tough few years. A bit gutted. We've lost a lot in the last probably, uh, definitely last 18, 18 months, two years. We had our licences resumed office. They just made an announcement in the media and so we lost our licences, all about 15 tonnes worth of quota holdings. You know, our, our boats have all been rendered useless. Um, my fresh fish supply has been diminished that I used to sell at home to all the people and that. Like, all my fish shops and stuff, you know, they're all in despair because they don't know where all their barramundi and that's going to come from. Darcy uses gill nets in his fishing business, but the federal government has decided to phase them out by mid-2027. He's been allocated an NX licence by Fisheries Queensland, which will allow him to use gill nets over the next three years of the phase-out, but under new conditions. These include installing a camera on the boat to facilitate an independent onboard monitoring program, the presence of an observer on the majority of fishing expeditions and checking nets every two hours. We have to have an observer come on the boat to make sure that we're one, rotting down all our discards, all our um, interactions with um, species of conservation interest and uh, um, cross-check that we're rotting down how many fish we catch and the right weights and reporting all that stuff. Darcy's concerned by these new conditions, primarily for the risks they pose. We've got to check all our nets within two hours. So basically, you've got to, uh, about one and a half hours, you've got to start checking your nets to have every net checked within that two-hour two period because it's as soon as you um, drop the, la the anchor on the last net is when you have to start checking it two hours from that time. And then, well, the other night we were, we were doing that, we are doing our best to try and, you know, abide by these new rules. And it all went terribly wrong and this was a very nice night for fishing. There was no wind, there was no rain, visibility was great, there was no waves. And we've come in to check a gillnet and there was a big crocodile there and um, we went to, I, went, I leant over the side of the boat, my hand got entangled in the gillnet and to, uh, to free that hand because it was starting to tow my, my arm out of the boat, I had to use my other arm to um, free it because of the amount of run and, uh, run and pressure on the net. And as I've done that, I've freed one hand, but I've overbalanced and, and my other hand is actually entangled at the same time to the point that um, my legs started kicking and striking and the observer came over because Dad was trying to hold the boat where it was because we shouldn't have been there because of the current. So he couldn't help me and just lucky the observer was there, they actually grabbed me and, and dragged me back into the boat. New cameras installed by Fisheries Queensland on Darcy's boat recorded this close call. But the cameras have also been raised as a concern of privacy. So the camera videos us while we're checking the nets and also while we're sitting in the boat talking and whatnot, we've got to have a video camera on. As soon as we shoot our first bit of fishing gear, the camera must be on as soon as we tie our rope to the tree and must be and can only be turned off when we've picked up, retrieved our last anchor because it's past the part of the fishing aperture. Sean Breen of Fisheries Queensland says the observers and cameras have been introduced to validate claims from fishers that the threatened species interaction rates with gillnets are low. Unfortunately, and there are, you know, in any industry, the people that don't do exactly the right thing. And we do know that there has been not as many reported as perhaps 
has actually occurred in terms of interacting or impacting on these species. So with this kind of validation, um, with the the cameras and the observer program, we'll be able to, to know for sure whether or not those interactions are happening and, and what kind of impacts uh, the, the net fishery is having on, on those species. Ms Breen says the cameras are not an invasion of privacy. There are ways that we can ensure that the privacy of the individual is protected and I think there is certainly no intention that those cameras are pointed towards sleeping quarters or internal to you know, the, the particular um, locations that are private on a boat, they are firmly pointed towards where the net is being pulled up and where the catch is being sorted. The question that must be asked of Sean Breen is how much have all of these changes cost? I couldn't give you an exact um, price of, of the investment on that component, but uh, you know, to date there's been 17 cameras installed on boats I'm not in that, that part of Fisheries Queensland, so I can't give you a breakdown of the costs. So a question that remains unanswered for now. But it's not the only question the gillnet industry wants answered. After his close call, Darcy Fazio has safety at the top of his mind. I'd like to know why we can't come up with a safe resolution on how we can operate these annex fishing licences. Why can't we do a visual check? at our discretion if, it, if, the, um, if the current's too strong or all the conditions are too dangerous. Why do I have to endanger my life just because someone's, someone's written that in a rule book who, who is very disconnected with the industry, although they manage it? According to Fisheries Queensland, not everything is set in stone. Change could be on the horizon. I think it's fair to say that some of them will be revised for sure. I think there'll be some that, that won't be able to be revised because they will have been subject to a government decision. Um, but certainly others that are more operational in nature, we will be able to have a look at and refine and improve so that the fishers can remain safe, sustainable and actively working in the fishery. Sian Preen, Director of Fisheries Management with Fisheries Queensland, ending that story from Lucy Cooper. Now, do you like trialing and testing out new fruit when you see them at your grocery store? I have to admit, I do. And especially I'm interested in different looking fruit that have different flavors. On a farm near Darwin in the Northern Territory, there's a family trialing a bright yellow fruit called Langsat. It hails from Southeast Asia and has a sweet flavor with a hint of citrus. There aren't many of these trees in Australia, but grower Han Sang Xian says they are so delicious his family has planted 100 trees with hopes of commercial production in the coming years. He shared some fruit with Matt Brand. Uh, you're looking at Langsat. It's, it's a crop that we've, we're trialling here that we've been trying for a few years. We're, we're still trying to work out a, a good way to grow it in this, this subtropical kind of climate versus where they originally are from. So for those listening who have never heard of Langsat, how would you describe the fruit? It looks like um, grapes attached to trunks, but instead of the colour of a colour grape of red or, or green, it's actually golden and yellow. Um, it's probably as big as, uh, just a little bit larger than a, a quail egg. When you open it up, it looks like um, it has little citrus segments and it tastes kind of a little bit hint of citrus, a little bit of um, long kong and a little bit of uh, long ans as well too. It's hard to describe until you try, but once you start, you, you don't stop. 
Well, that's right. We were just standing here eating a few, and that's well, that's why I, that's why I thought <laughs> I'm going to get the microphone out and do a story here because yeah, Lang's Lang Sats. Before we came out, I actually asked your dad what are his favourite fruits to eat on the farm, mm. and he he mentioned these and said go and okay. try a few. So, how many trees have you got on the farm? We have probably close to about a, a hundred trees in, in different climates. So we have one out in the open like this, it's basically in a row. We have one growing under a couple of durian trees and a couple under some uh, jumping up trees, trying to kind of mimic that that tropical environment, and see how they're going. Those are looking a bit, little bit better, but those are still quite young, and we don't know from there. So all the fruit that I can see, <laughs> what are you doing with it? What I'm doing right now, eating it. <laughs> For family and friends at the moment. Yeah. What, what's the hope? Do, do you feel like this can become a commercial crop for you? We hope. In a couple of years, we're just trying to work out the best way to proceed. Being like in, in the Darwin region, we're a lot more warmer here than the Queensland, so we're, we, our fruit comes on a little bit earlier, so we can be able to reach onto that market earlier than the Queensland guys who can do it. Um, it is a quite a in-demand fruit, and when, when it's on the market, it's easily ranging about $30 to $40 a kilo. Langsat grower Han Sang Sia speaking to Matt Bran. And that's Countrywide for this week. I'm Jessica Schremer. It's been great to have your company. If you'd like to check out more rural news and stories, you can head online to abc.net.au or tune into the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.